And like we say, brothers and sisters, if we believe that this is the word of God, we want God to write it on our hearts, as he says in Psalm 119, that we might not sin against him. Um, there is an unhealthy fascination with the demonic among Hollywood that has taken darker and darker turns over the years. If you ever, at the in-laws like I am, or, or you know, I remember being there, uh, or at my parents' house, uh, running to try to change the remote channel because my kids were in the same room when a commercial came on for the latest movie, you know, talking about the latest exorcism or the latest horror genre. Movies boast of demonic forces and dolls and children and a host of evil spirits that terrorize people. Let me say this. The actual demons and Satan himself are very satisfied with this, I'm sure, since these depictions are so grotesque and are so insane that they can be easily dismissed or they can easily trap someone in fear. On that thought, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, where Lewis is writing as a, a senior demon named Screwtape uh, to a lower ranking demon named Wormwood, he makes it up as a fiction, He's writing as the older to the younger. The following advice concerning men and what they think about demons is given. Quote, the fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. This is what Screwtape says to Wormwood about his man he's trying to tempt. Since they think that way, it will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, Suggest to the man a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, parentheses, it is an old textbook method of confusing them, close parentheses, he therefore cannot believe in you. Lewis is right about the numbing effect such comic figures or comic thoughts of Satan have on us. He once wrote, if, if devils exist, their first aim is to give you an anesthetic to put you off your guard. Only if that fails do you become aware of them. But some refuse to be aware of them at all, right? So the other side of our culture would dismiss spiritual forces, dark nature, uh, you know, magic, uh, anything that is evil um, and practiced, they would dismiss it as being sensational. The postmodern, post-enlightenment thought is too sophisticated. It thinks too sharply. It's too scientific to conclude that anything like spirits, angels, demons, dark, or light magic exists. I think the same error Satan is also happy about. These people have outsmarted that antiquity old devil, and they're living a life ignoring him, or so they think. In the church, we are either fools thinking we can perform exorcisms and heal like this text says, or we are often entirely dismissive of a spiritual warfare at all. That seems to be the spectrum often that we're hearing and teaching. We have no clue what to do with these kind of texts in the Bible. I want to remind you what we sang this morning. We sang a hymn this morning, already written, uh, you know, it was written by Martin Luther, uh, the main reformer of the Protestant Reformation, at least the initial. Did you hear how serious and acute the brothers' words were in that German hymn that's been translated to me and you in English today? Did you hear it? Let me read it to you again. Uh, 
in your in your bulletin. I wanted to use my bulletin. This is a a, a demonstration introduction. You can use this thing as a devotional. Luther said that though, verse 3, this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his triumph to uh, his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Luther once wrote elsewhere, if the devil were wise enough and would stand by in silence and let the gospel be preached, he would suffer less harm. For when there is no battle for the gospel, it rusts and the gospel finds no cause or no occasion to show its vigor and power. Therefore, nothing better can befall the gospel than that the world should fight it with force and cunning. That's probably way closer to the worry I would have for us this morning as we approach this text. A stale, rusty gospel that never encounters the prince of darkness. Why would he ever bother the children of God who bore themselves to death in the world? He only bothers those who are serious about the advancement of the kingdom. So anyone in the church who would dismiss the reality that we do not battle flesh and blood, but we battle spiritual forces in the heavenly places, that person will soon find themselves possessing a rusty, comfortable gospel that actually pushes them not into the arms of their dear Savior like we sing about, but into the arms of Satan. We have to be really careful when we come to a text like this. So listen. Whether we are guilty of over-sensationalizing dark or demonic activity or if we're enjoying the bliss of laying in the arms of the devil unknowingly. Thankfully, today we're going to see Jesus gives us the clearest understanding of them because the kingdom of God has come to Ephesus in the preaching of Christ through Paul. And so Christ has come to Ephesus. And when Christ comes to a place, Satan flees. And that is a basic summary of what you're seeing in the text this morning. Where Christ comes, Satan flees. As you heard read just now, there are talks in this text about literal demonic possession, literal healings, literal casting out of demonic spirits, and literal practicing of dark magic that was being repented of. It's heavy in that regard. So what should we think about such things? Well, my admonition, as you can already tell, is we should not see a demon under and in everything and strive to find holy aprons and sweat rags and, you know, these existential uh, elements to get rid of evil. No, we shouldn't do that. We're also going to see we shouldn't dismiss this as a part of their age and, and be convinced that demons are not in the same operation today. We shouldn't do that either. No, instead, I'll offer us something else for the next 40 minutes. Let the text be the text. We're going to let the word be the word. And we're going to let, a, and let us learn something more than what is here. Hold on to what Luther taught us as we, sing, as we sang today. Okay, hold on to that throughout this whole thing. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Now that little word, brother and sister, is the words of God preached. It's the scripture. Uh, it has the final word in our text today, did it not? Before I give you the, the sermon note outlines, look at verse 20. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's learn how the word did a powerful work in Ephesus, shall we? Here's your three points today. The word, the word was confirmed, challenged, and convicting. 
We're going to see that the word was confirmed, the word was challenged, and then the word convicts. Confirmed, challenged, convicts. Let's talk about the confirmation of the word of God as it came to Ephesus. Before we get weirded out or too uh, excited here, let's get the big idea uh, from these first two verses, verses 11 and 12. God built the church of Ephesus on his word. And then he confirmed his word with miraculous signs. I want to show you that, but that's the big idea of this first, this first point. God built the church of Ephesus on his word, then confirmed his word with miraculous signs. If you look at the two verses before our passage today, you will see what has happened uh, and has been happening for two years prior to this event and the riot that's going to come in the next weeks. So this passage and next week is a short time. But before we see in verse 9 of the previous, uh, uh, in chapter 19 there, 9, the last half, what does it say? Uh, he withdrew, okay, that's Paul. He withdrew from the synagogue, from them, the Jews, and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. What was Paul doing in Ephesus in that hall for two years? He was preaching the scriptures and the word of God. In chapter 20, Paul is going to call the now plural leadership of Ephesus. He's going to call the Ephesian elders to him in, in chapters to come that we'll study. He's going to tell them about his ministry among them. And in Ephesians, or in, in, uh, in, in Acts 20, 26 and 27, you could turn over and see this. Paul tells them, he says, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Do you see that? Paul's talking to them about the two years he just spent with them that we're in our text previous. Now, I bring that up because for us to understand the miraculous outpouring of these apostolic signs in verses 11 and 12, we need to see that this is only something that is aiding and lifting up the word of God that has been preached there for two years. Okay, it's rightful uh, place in the center of the church of Ephesus is the, is the word of God. That's the thing that's in the right place. And these signs now are accompanying it, picking it up mightily. And boy, was it mightily, was it not? Look at verse 11. Notice Luke's language here. It is intentional and I love Luke uh, for, for doing this. He basically says, this is unbelievable, but believe it because it happened. <laughs> That's what he's basically getting at. When you see that extraordinary, this is an extraordinary type of blessing that God is choosing to do through Paul. We obsess over the strange power of God in signs and wonders, don't we? I mean, we really do as people. We crave it. Uh, why is that? What in us wants to confirm the powerful feeling of euphoric happiness, right? Or what is it in us that wants to, you know, avoid the hair standing up on the back of your neck kind of worry about a haunting or a spook or, or some worry that you have, um, you know, as you think of evil? Well, that is a tricky thing to answer. And if we were to answer it philosophically and psychologically, it would involve me and you going down a very deep rabbit hole that this text presently doesn't care about. <laughs> this text doesn't care if you think one thing or another about aprons and, 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 uh, and handkerchiefs being used by God to heal people. What it wants to tell you is God used the handkerchiefs and the, the aprons of Paul and 
bless the fact that these people thought they could be healed when they touched it. And they were. And all that was using God's economy to fuel the word of God in their area. It is just given to us as facts. And I think it's to be extolled and proclaimed, not shied away from. Uh, Paul did extraordinary, literally think dynamite. That's the word, you know, uh, that, that we shares the same root as dynamite. I mean, powerfully, these miracles appear in the latter days in Ephesus. How extra was it? Look at verse 12. Paul sneezes, it seems like, at work, and his co-workers healed, right? I mean, so it seems like. The words that are used for these articles that are going out and like having healing power, it's literally Paul's sweat rags. So think like he goes to do his tent making in the morning and he's wiping his sweat with a rag and his apron that he maybe wore, uh, you know, it's implied touches his skin. These are the things, it, it's, it's incredible. I mean, it reminds us of earlier in the book of Acts, Acts 5. You remember what happened in Acts 5? There's Peter, there's the New Testament church, there's great unity. Barnabas sells his field, right? The word of God's being preached. But in that verse 14 and 15 in chapter 5, it said, more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and mats, and then as Peter came by, his shadow at least may fall on them. I mean, they were even putting people in, in the shadow of the Apostle Peter. Here, the Apostle Paul, having this great miracle being worked to confirm the Word of God, people are being healed. Now, when that miraculous work was taking place in Acts 5, I want to help you with this. Where were they? What city were they in? You can answer. In Acts 5, when Peter's healing, Peter is preaching a lot. What main city are they in in Acts 5, where we start? Jerusalem. Our first city to have the gospel established in it, in Acts, has tremendous power in the affirmation of, of the apostolic signs to say, this is the word of God. Now, when these miracles work in our passage, where are we? Ephesus. Our last city recorded in Acts to have the gospel established in such a clear way. It's not that we won't see more cities where Paul's preaching and, and, and gathering, but this is the last kind of hurrah before we make a turn in Acts to just finish with the life of Paul. And so the first and the last cities, Luke shows us that God was pleased. We've gone Jerusalem, now to the ends of the earth, and heaven is bearing witness like it did in the life of Jesus and the miraculous works that Christ did. Now these apostles are seeing the same signs. You see the continuity? You see why this would matter? I mean, Luke, Luke states, I don't understand it. It's unbelievable, but it must be reported. It must be reported. Now, I think that's an argument to strengthen the close of such gifts. They are beginning to close as the life of the apostle Paul and the living apostles began to die. And these affirming signs, like someone's sweat rag, you know, uh, being something that could heal, are going away. This is why when you read this first point, we're thinking about the word of God and how we can be confirmed in it. It is so silly today to think of some fool on the TV, on TBN, yet I'm telling you, I found this, that just a year ago, uh, a false teacher was on the TBN network telling people that their staff had prayed over a little piece of carpet that they would send to you. If you would give money, then you could get this carpet in the mail. You could fold it out and you could pray on it because it had been anointed like the claws and the handkerchiefs of Paul. 
Oh, what a, what a gross error. What an absolute misunderstanding. The primary motivation coming through this, this excerpt I read about a year ago that was televised for poor souls to be preyed upon in, in, this, in the cities of our country, the text read, and, and the main thrust was not the word of God being alive in your life. It was for prosperity and goodness and for them to make money. Well, we don't need much help, do we, to see in this text. The point of these signs, brothers and sisters, they're not to manipulate. They're confirming that God's word is advancing in Ephesus. Do you see that? I hope you do. What's happening here in essence, and why is this included if it doesn't happen today? Well, beloved, that's the right question. Uh, what's happening here is this. Jesus was and is and will be forever God in the flesh, fully God, fully man. Demons saw him, and they cried out audibly about their certain doom, something they never did before in Scripture, mind you. Search the Old Testament. Jesus was healing so powerfully that even those who touched the hem of his garment were healed of lifelong diseases. And Jesus said that these men, Paul and Peter and his followers, would do more powerful, mightier works than he would to establish the kingdom so that the kingdom would advance. You see, what's happening in our text, it is not for Paul's name. It is all for Jesus' sake. It, the signs serve Jesus. They serve the building up of Jesus' church, the empowerment of that church to preach the gospel and nothing else. What you have in this passage is the establishing of the power of the word of God. It is established. The scriptures are closed uh, in the greatest hope, right? We don't write the Bible anymore. If any man says he does, he's cursed. God has made it clear in the end of Revelation. Do not add or take away from this. Right? There is this closing. Why? Because for certain you can know now that salvation belongs to the Lord in Christ. And so you can be free. You can truly be free from spiritual oppression and possession. I'll close this first point in this way. I, I love the song, Symbols and Signs, by beautiful eulogy on this topic. You should note it and go look it up. Their poetry sums up what we have and, uh, and what we're saying here. Here it, here it is. The riches of God's mercy is worth more than your superstition. Tell me, how does a Christian begin to develop discernment and wisdom? First, we submit every symbol and sign to the authority of the scriptures. You know, that's what's happening here. The word of God was confirmed in Ephesus. And the proof really is uh, in, in what we've read. Now, here's the thing. When the word of God was confirmed, a counterfeit appears. And it challenges the word. And that's our second point. So the word was confirmed, but also the word is challenged. Crazy story in our passage, right? I mean, when you need three adjectives to describe people, right? Itinerant Jewish exorcists, you got something real candid and specific going on. And it's weird. That title alone is weird about these guys. Um, you know, it's, it reads, when you read that, it reads like Father Delaney and, you know, the Amityville horror is upon us or something, you know? It feels so Hollywood. Uh, but then, you know, they get whooped in this fight. And, uh, you know, that's the sermon title. We just took it right out of here, Naked and Wounded, because um, it's wild. But let's get the facts right before we run away with the Hollywood eisegesis of this passage, 
okay? Hollywood wants to tell you to read it one way. You don't read it this way. This story actually, I think, is most helpfully understood if we do a little bit of context work together, okay? This city, Ephesus, is a port city at this time, and it is the capital of the Roman province of Asia. So this is the capital city of the Roman-occupied now Asia Minor area. It was full of idols as a city, full of false gods, Get this, roughly 300 years before the story that's here in our text, uh, the temple they had built was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They had re-erected it uh, in Ephesus. It was a massive temple, like the size of a football field, uh, and it was built in honor of the Roman false goddess Diana, which the Greeks knew her as by Artemis, which is what gets reported to me and you in the Bible here, Artemis. Artemis of the Ephesians was worshipped emphatically as the goddess of fertility and of magic and of astrology. Uh, Terrible sexual acts were performed at her temple. There was rampant cult uh, prostitution in the the city of Ephesus. But mainly, uh, Artemis was known as the god of the businessman. So that tells you their priorities. Mainly, she uh, brought big business and success to the area which we'll see next week, uh, is going to cause some problems when the gospel is, is, is being brought up. The Lexham Bible Dictionary cites many historians, archaeologists, um, when, they, when they come up with some things. When it came to the, the influence that a city like Ephesus had on people, uh, it says that you know, among the poor and the uneducated in Ephesus, the practice of magic was extremely popular. And in Greek thought, Hellenistic thought, Magic was the belief in a spirit world uh, that influenced virtually every aspect of life. Because of the popularity of magic that was in Ephesus, the phrase Ephesians, Ephesian writings, uh, it, it, it's, it's used to describe any document that contained magic formulas and spells. Now get this, our oldest manuscripts that we have we, we have dated to, to this time. There are also dated to that time actual, like, recorded formulas and spells of magic that was practiced in this city. So we know these people were heavily influenced by their obsession with a Hollywood-like evil. It's interesting. Knowing that background, we can begin to relieve, I think, much of the tension this passage may give us today. What I just told you is common in Ephesus. And sadly, some in the name of God among the Jewish religion were taking part in this silliness. Look again at verse 13 and 14. This tells us these itinerant Jewish exorcists, uh, 14 says there were seven of them, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. This tells us just how far off some of the Jews uh, have gotten from the word of God and the way of God revealed in the Old Testament. You know, according to Old Testament law, these seven sons and their father, if he confirms they're doing this stuff, they should have been stoned for dealing with the occult like they were, okay? And yet they, in their touted faith of Judaism, they're they're acting like they're part of, you know, the true way of, of, of following Yahweh. They began to manipulate the situation in Ephesus greatly. They take as their own any name or any little power and put a religious flair on it and call it helpful, and they're charlatans and they're liars. And Luke wants to out them, sure, 
But really, the Word of God outs them, doesn't it? I mean, they come challenging the Word. It's the only place in all the New Testament, the only place where the word exorcism is used with the idea of a person doing it. So the only place. Now, not to say, sure, exorcisms do exist, right? I mean, Christ himself, the Apostle Paul. Don't you recall Paul casting out a demon of that annoying girl that was following them? So we know that this happens. So men, men do, you know, they, they, this, God uses Paul and, and Christ, of course. But here, it's a reference as a title. It's the only place. It's the only place. That should tell us something about the charlatan nature of these fools, right? And fools they were, were they not? Think about the details here. I'm not going to give extended commentary on the happenings uh, in this story because we've already read it together. But man, it's pretty clear. Maybe one commentary I'll give. I don't know if you've done much fist fighting, right? But if you've ever fought someone and had a fist fight, like when you were a kid or, or whatever, um, you know, if, you, if the result of the fist fight is, is that you end up naked and bleeding, <laughs> you've lost the fight, right? And like, it's so crazy that at least two of them, the word there could be a, a couple or a few, maybe all seven of them, when, when they go into this, in this situation, uh, thinking that they will just use what God is actually using, the word of Paul, the, the, the name of Christ. They go into this thing thinking, hey, look, that sounds cool. Let's use that for our own, our own business savvy stuff. They go into this house and the demon speaks to them, right? And what does he say? He's like, Paul, I've heard of, right? First, he says, Jesus, I know. <laughs> Remember, demons know Jesus perfectly. Jesus, we know. Paul, we've heard of, but who are you? Who are you? They're imposters, and yet they challenge the word of God. Crazy story aside, here's what we need to see. Look at the results from the demise of these, of these posers. Verse 17 again. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, this event. Both Jews and Greeks and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was, expo was extolled. Do you see that? When the word of God was challenged, indirectly here in Ephesus. It only aided the confirmation of the power of the word directly. Let me say that again. When the word of God was challenged kind of indirectly in Ephesus here, it aided the confirmation of the power of the word directly. That's how God works. And we will see next in closing what the fear of God paired with respect for the word of God actually does. But first, let's just apply this second to our own lives if we can. Okay, here's the obvious. You ready for it? Here's an obvious application from this story. Brothers and sisters, do not put your trust in horoscopes, in palm readers, stargazing, in essential oil recitations, in Ouija boards, tarot cards, or the occult of any form. Don't put your trust in those things. Put your trust fully in the word of God. That's obvious, right? That was Old Testament. That's still new. Here's the less obvious. Do not think you are above putting your trust in demonic ideologies. Do not think that because this is an existential kind of moment and you're so above dark magic like this that you're not sometimes led astray by the flesh, worldly thought, and also devils. We sometimes put ourselves in a situation where we think that what we're struggling with is kind of unsourced. 
But the list I just gave you is what Reformed theologians have always agreed on. There is clearly a flesh. You have an inner uh, man, you know, the old man, the, the undying part of you that God is crucifying regularly in Christ. One day will be all burned up in your, you know, sanctification that's full. But for now, indwelling sin remains. And that influences so much of what you do. There's a pound of flesh in all of the things we do. But secondly, there are also worldly thoughts that you will be subjected to. And I guarantee you that these seven sons of Sceva, they represent a population of people in the Jewish times that were somewhere between, we're supposed to believe in Yahweh, but we're kind of entranced by what Ephesus has going on. It looks really good. They are a lot, many of them, positioned at the gate of Sodom as a businessman respected by the world, and they shouldn't be. For God's fire is coming, and they've forgotten it. Now, some of them will be rescued. You know, some of the priests believe. But many of them will find themselves loving that worldly thought. We can be influenced by that. And then, of course, finally, and it, there are spiritual forces at work in and around us. You know? Paul writes to the Ephesians, of all people. Right? The ones who burn their magic books. He writes to them and he says, do we not, you know, you don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and darkness. We need to realize that there are arguments and lofty opinions that are going to be raised up against the knowledge of God in our lives. We are responsible to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ, as 2 Corinthians 10.5 says. Do you hear where those things begin and what I just quoted? Notice that arguments and lofty opinions that, that, that come to you in the form of spiritual attack, worldly counsel from within your own flesh. Where do they start? Do they begin at the top of the temple with the temple prostitutes of Ephesus? No. No, they begin in the hearts and in the minds of people. We are having these things raised against the knowledge of God, knowledge of God. They begin internally. They express themselves externally eventually, and they out themselves as being dead works if you're not a Christian. But all of us must face the temptations of things raised against the knowledge of God. How? Taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ. There's wonderful application in the losing battle of the sons of Sceva, for us, I think it needs to go beyond the obvious. Let me say it this way. If you're satisfied in life when you have enough money or when your retirement's comfortable or you have a good plan laid out, when you're satisfied in life when you check the boxes of a biblical Christianity, when you're satisfied in life when you reach your goals for work, be warned and admonished that satisfaction in anything but Jesus and knowing him more and more in his word, anything that comes between that being true about you, it's probably a lofty opinion. It's probably something that's being raised up for you to put your trust in. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are sealed. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Paul writing to Timothy, the preacher pastor in Ephesus wants him to know some are going to depart. And you know why? They'll, they'll have deceitful spirits in the teachings of demons. They've entertained those. Now he's talking about non-believers who actually will 
be a part of the church, but then end up leaving it, showing they were never a part of it. But there is a great hope for us, right? My admonishment, be guarded in mind, beloved. Be guarded in heart. The devil loves to challenge the word of God. He'll continue to challenge it in your life. But listen, God confirms his word. God can handle the challenges. And here's what we're going to see in closing. When he handles it, the word convicts, okay? The word in Ephesus, it was confirmed. It was challenged, but listen, it convicted. Look, look at verse 18. Last point here. Many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. Praise God for his love to convict the saints, right? Did you notice, brothers and sisters, that it is those who have already believed previously but have now come under conviction? What saved them? It was not this amazing, miraculous account about seven guys getting beaten bloody and naked for the glory of God. It, it was to the glory of God that God defended his word in the name of Christ, but it was not unto salvation. It clearly, these were already believers and are now having here and sitting under the fear of what the powerful God that they've come to, come to know they come, and what happens? The word convicts them. The word confronts these believers in this miracle, and they come under conviction. Revival always begins with repentance. Mark that. If there's no repentance, don't call it revival. <laughs> don't call it revival. Call it everybody getting together and getting loud and having fun and eating good food. But don't call it revival, because revival is marked with repentance. Notice, it wasn't just promises that they made at youth camp or some ecstatic religious environment where they said, I'll never do that again, Lord. It wasn't that. They also do it indeed. Look at verse 19. 18, they come confessing. 19, the number of those who had practiced magic arts, they brought their books. And these were Christians, early Christians in Ephesus that wouldn't give up fully in their confession what they loved. They had secret sin. It says they come and they brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of that in that moment. They found it to come to 50,000 pieces of silver. Here's the deed. Repentance can't just be in word. It's got to be in deed. And the deed here is pretty awesome. Some estimate today that these expensive spell books may be close to a million dollars in our currency. You think about that. In magical theory, the power of an incantation or a spell uh, is bound up in its secrecy. So the power of it is bound up in this idea, you know, and if we know anything about sin, it makes sense, right? I'm only most confident in my sin as I can be hidden in my sin. You expose me and expose my sin for what it is, and it loses its power over me. That's the whole heart behind confession. And so in its nature, magical theory was flying in the face of someone believing the gospel. And so they show up and they say, the greatest thing magical theory can offer is secrecy. We denounce it. Here they are. They won't, they won't give us life. The word of God will. They burn the books. Wow. Praise God. Christians do not harbor secret sin indefinitely. They can't. They do not. Let me say that again. True Christians do not harbor secret sin indefinitely. There may be a season, and I'm talking a rotting bone, miserable, sold season that a Christian may find themselves where sin remains unconfessed. I think that's these, these Ephesians, some of them. And it took the Holy Spirit working 
get this, through the actions of an evil demonic spirit to make a big noise about God's name is greatest, it took that to shake up those rotten bones of some of those Christians and make them come out with their books and trust God. Burn the economy of Ephesus, give up their whole life, probably some of them, as they were dependent on the trade, and say, I will follow Jesus. That's repentance. That's when the word convicts. That's when you can tell. See, real Christians cannot harbor secret sin indefinitely. But listen, if you do harbor sin, unconfess, it's only a season. If you're here today, you haven't confessed something deep, something private to God This text is proof that you need to repent. You need to do it today. You need to confess today and you need to find freedom. I will declare that happily, unapologetically to you, to myself. Secret sin is as rotten in the bones. David said it was like a fire shut up in him, burning up everything he had. This is what secret unconfessed sin does to us. This sin for them was so part of the identity of many of these Ephesian Christians, they couldn't even see it until the word of God exposed it. That may be you. Let me tell you a story. We saw the word of God in power at Southeastern Oklahoma State University's Baptist Collegiate Ministry. (laughs) We were a part of a group called Men's Ministry. And for all of its warts and ugly things that I lament as a leader that led it, for all those things that I would do way different, I will say one thing about that season. I saw the word of God grab saints mightily and powerfully. The the blood of the lamb and the word of a testimony of men that came together and prayed and believed and held out to other men, confess your, your unconfessed sin and trust Jesus. I saw it with my own eyes happen over and over again. And I'll never forget one night where there was a brother that came under God's conviction. He had heard testimonies. He had heard the blood of the lamb. Jesus alone forgives. He's greater than any secret sin you have. And then the word of the testimony, you know, uh, that he had heard some brothers. And he came to me afterwards. And in the office, this young man, he told me, he said, I, look, I, I, have, I, was, I was abused horribly as a kid. I'm acting out. I've been acting out in private in a horrible, grotesque way for years and years and years. I think I'm a Christian, but I don't know what to do. And I remember praying for this brother. He's weeping. And I was weeping. But I said, you know, we got to do something about this. I don't know if it was young zeal, just being a young pastor. You know, I just gotten married. But we made a plan. And a lot like these Ephesians, this brother, uh, we made a plan for that, that, that week, that Thursday. I wanted to see him. And I wanted him to take all of these horrible, dark, evil objects that he had accrued over, the, over years of secret addiction. I said, you get all those, every one of them, you put them in a box and you walk. I was just, I, again, young, dumb zeal probably. You know, I get home, Brittany gets home uh, from work at the daycare and I'm like, listen, I'm, I'm digging a hole in the backyard and I'm building a fire. Don't ask why and don't come outside. She's like, what? I was like, just leave it at that. I go outside. Such a bad, so, so much wrong with this, right? But one thing was not wrong. This brother walked. He, he walked. I told him, don't drive, walk. And the whole way over here, you think about what you're holding. You think about who God is and the new man in Christ you are. And when you get there, brother, you, we're going to burn it. And to this day, I, I could take you to the house and we could dig it up. And you'll see the charred ashes of what remains of that brother who 
Evil practices divulged, confessed sin brought forth, and I praise God that now he's married and he has kids, and I praise doing well. I texted him in light of, in light of this. I texted him saying, hey, I hope, I hope you're all right. I'd love to connect with you again because I haven't heard from him in years. I pray he is continuing because here's the idea. That's a wonderful story. I mean, I, I mean it. I, I think of it and I'm like, wow, you know, I got to see that and be a part of that. But as I reflected on it preparing for this sermon, I was thinking, what was powerful about that? We like to think that as those items disappear into the flame, that that is what is powerful. But I remember that night. After that happened and we covered that up with dirt, it was the most normal, unexciting moment. And I remember that brother just having a conversation with me for about an hour after that. And I just remember telling him, you know, from this point on, you need, you need to fill your life with God's word. I'm gonna tell you right now, that was the sweetest hour. That brother walked away back to his dorm that night, realizing not that he's been emptied by the power of the fire of what was evil, but hungry to say, now there's room for what I need. The word of God. I need it. That's what true conviction under the word looks like. Jesus taught it like this. When a demon is cast out, it goes out into the wilderness, right? And the person it was in has, has, has their house, their soul. It gets swept clean and put in order. Well, the demon, he wants to come back. Jesus taught this. I'm paraphrasing. And when the demon comes back, it finds the house of the man, the soul, clean, swept, and put in order. But that implies it finds it empty. And Jesus said, that evil spirit is going to go out into the wilderness, find seven more, more wicked than themselves, come back and inhabit the man. And his last place is worse than the first. What's Jesus getting at? Is he getting at the spooky, weird Hollywood interpretation of all these things? No. Jesus is principally showing, when you confess sin, you are rid of Satan. Now be filled with something else. For if you don't fill your mind and your heart and what you are confessing to be rid of with the word of God, with the instruction, if you aren't filling the house, be warned. Be warned. Because the fall, when it comes back, will be worse than the first. Our final verse again confirms this, is it not? The word of the Lord continue to increase. Notice, not the signs and the wonders. They don't continue to increase. Not the uh, exorcisms. They don't, they don't continue to increase. Not the handkerchief like episodes. No. What happens in Ephesus, guys? The word's confirmed. The word con convicts here at the end, right? After it's been challenged, the word continued. <laughs> and so our last point is no point at all. It's just to finish here. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let me pray and then we will get to sing together about the power of the blood before we confess our sins. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word in Ephesus, God. What a powerful testimony to it. This word was confirmed. This word was challenged. And yet, God, it was convicting to those who were really in Christ. We ask now for the same convicting power of the word here. If today there be any unconfessed sin in us, whether that is identity-driven and it's been a part of our lives for a long time, or whether it's new, Lord, and seems new. God, we want to confess it. So as we sing and then we do confess our sins, <clears throat> help us to do it in spirit and in truth. Lord, I pray as we now sing about the power of the blood, help us to escape the lies of Halloween and Hollywood. God, help us to escape the existatic kind of weird thoughts we have about spirits. Help us to remember the simple words you said, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. 
Let them be a meditation to our souls that gives us great hope that you have partitioned in each one of us your own spirit. Together, God, we are stronger. Lord, help us to be the body. Help us to understand that we are guarded and protected in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to take every thought captive in obedience to your word. In all this, we acknowledge you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.